0: All right, let's jump in. First of all, good morning and welcome to the best day of the year. Absolutely. Yes? Would you agree? Yeah. Better than Christmas, better than summer break. I mean, this by far reigns supreme. I do have to ask, did anyone inadvertently get here at 8 a.m. this morning? Because that will sink you to a level of depression unlike anything ever known. And uh, our hearts are with you if that happened. But we're doing Amos today today. And he is the third in the lineup of the Minor Prophets. If you're newer with us these past several months, what we've been doing since summer is doing kind of a travelogue, if you will, or a journey through a section of the Old Testament called the Prophets. More specifically, the latter prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we've included Daniel, and now what's called the 12, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi if you're unfamiliar with some of those strange names. What we're doing with this is trying to situate these, these very confusing, highly contextualized books in the life and situation of what was going on at their time. Because if you know the life and situation going on at the time, suddenly what they're writing about makes sense. It's kind of like reading a newspaper. When you read a newspaper, a newspaper is not there to really teach you. The newspaper is to speak into things that you're experiencing and somewhat already know about and just give you the updates or commentary, if you will. That's kind of what the prophets are doing, but imagine imagine reading a newspaper from like 1435 in in Prague or something like that. Well, make it worse, because now we're reading accounts from 700 BC and even more foreign culture and language. And so my hope today is to give you that introduction to Amos. We're going to see if we can do it in one shot. It might be a two-weeker. But to help situate this really cool book, and I will tell you, it is one of my favorite minor prophets, and I'll let it speak for itself as to why. So if you have a Bible, you have a phone, you have a tablet, I'm going to encourage you to follow along, and we're going to do some reading here today, and watch how the pieces come together, and open with me, or jump with me, if you would, to Amos 1, 1. Here it is. Here it is. And I know you're asking yourself right now, why did he tell me to open my Bible, or get out my phone if he's going to put it on the screen? Because we're going to do more than one-one, but I want this to kind of frame things. And what I want to do is circle back to something we've talked about a number of times already, but reinforce it. The opening verse matters. All this kind of detailed stuff that we don't care about fundamentally matters to help us get our footing in terms of what's going on. So here it is, the words of Amos one of the shepherds of Tekoa what he saw concerning Israel 2 years before the earthquake when Uzziah or Azariah depending on the book that you're reading was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel let's break it down it's the words of Amos what we see commonly how they open these are the words of blank he is a shepherd Okay, big deal, right? Don't let it skip. Don't let it skate you by. Most of the prophets were in the paid profession of prophecy. Most of the prophets were part were part of the royal court. Isaiah is a classic example of this. You know, he was in. He was a, a. What would we call him today? A cabinet member or something like that. He was part of the royal court of four kings, and his professional job was to interpret what God wanted for the kingdom so that the king could act accordingly. Because the separation that we have today of the religious or the supernatural or the divine sphere from everyday life, they would have laughed at you back then going, my gosh, if God or the gods are involved, why would you not pay attention to what they're doing? And so they had professional people to do it. But that's not Amos. Amos is a shepherd. He's a shepherd from Tekoa. Tekoa is also significant because if you looked on a map to see where Tekoa is, you would find it's in Judah. Okay, hang with that for a minute. What he saw concerning who Israel. is Israel in Judah? No, Israel is not Judah. There are two different kingdoms, and and they're not on the best of terms either, right? We talked about the split after Solomon died between Israel and Judah. They had their own civil war. But in this case, the South won, so to speak. The South let the North go, if you want to put it that way. And so we have a shepherd from Judah giving prophetic words to Israel. How do you think that's going to go over? Okay, so we're situating some of this. He saw it two years before the earthquake. Before what earthquake? I don't really know what earthquake. But there are people that have written extensively about the earthquake, both commenting on it, archaeologists looking at things in retrospect, where they try to like find rubble and ruins and collapses and stuff like that, but also um, some ancient writings concerning the earthquake, and maybe even some biblical hints about the earthquake. Let me taste test it for you. I'm just going to read this. A major earthquake had occurred in Israel right around 760 B.C., which may have been during the time of Jeroboam II toward the end of his rule. Toward the end of his rule. okay. The earthquake is mentioned in the Book of Amos, of course. Geologists believe that they have found evidence of this big earthquake in sites throughout Israel and Jordan. Archaeologist Yigal Yadin and Israel Finkelstein, if those aren't great names, I don't know what are, date the earthquake level at Tel Hazor, if you're into archaeology, you will read about TELs, T-E-L, all over the place, to 760, based on stratigraphic analysis of the destruction debris. Similarly, David Usishkin arrives at the same date based on the sudden destruction level at Lachish, So multiple cities spread out, just trying to give you some of the modern studies into this today for the few of you who might be interested in this type of thing. According to Stephen Austin, the magnitude of this earthquake may have been at least 7.8, but was as likely as 8.2. Anyone ever like live in California? I know you did. Anyone ever been in an earthquake? Yeah. Yeah. Were you in San Francisco back in the 90s or whatever that was? What was the magnitude? Do you remember of that one? Well, it was about, I think it ended up and then we it. So that was a high 6. If you didn't hear, um, that was a high 6 when Tammy was living out in California at the time, and this was the one where we saw where the freeways were collapsing, the bridges were collapsing. This is an 8 or an 8.2 when there is no earthquake technology built into their structures or infrastructure, buildings, and whatnot. So just to kind of, you know, it's the, it's the earthquake. You know, we talk about things like that, right? I mean, when you can just refer something to it by a generic common noun, you know it's big, right? If we were to talk about the plague, right? Well, there's lots of plagues, but which one? No, the, the plague, right? If you were to talk about the the game, remember, the game, well, no, no, I mean, I'm making stuff up, so don't like, like, <laughs> but you know what I mean? You wouldn't communicate that way unless there was a common understanding that existed about what everyone, oh, yeah, no, I remember the game. You know, we we all have events. This is kind of what Amos is doing. I saw a couple of hands floating up, but maybe we hit it. Yeah? I was just going to say, yeah, it's a major cultural event. Major cultural event. I mean, it's like, oh, challenge yeah, yeah. Exactly. Kennedy getting shot. Were you there when Kennedy gets shot? You know, there is more than one person with the last name Kennedy. Which Kennedy? Right? I mean, you just know the earthquake. Let me read a little bit more. So, high sevens to maybe an 8.2. This magnitude 8 event appears to be the largest yet documented on the Dead Sea transform fault zone during the last four millennium. So, this region has not experienced a bigger earthquake than what archaeologists think from the destruction and debris and and, and things that they're seeing happened at this. The epicenter of the earthquake may have been 200 to 300 kilometers north of present-day Israel. So, that's a long way. And yet, what's shaking in? Um, I'm going to give you one more thing, Have have you guys ever heard of a guy named Josephus? He's worth your time if you ever get into like New Testament history, like the world in which Jesus lived. There's like really five sources that you want to read if you're ever going to kind of jump into understanding what's called that intertestamental time period, outside the Bible of course, which will always be your best source. And if you want those really quick, it's what's called the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, the Dead Sea Scrolls. You also want to read Philo, and then you want to read Josephus. If you're interested in that, come talk to me. I'll get you started. But Josephus is a Jewish historian who wrote about 70 A.D., give or take. And he was actually originally one of the Jewish freedom fighters. And when, it's it's speculative here, but when things started to go south and Rome came to dominancy and Rome had trapped him in, they waved the white flag, so to speak. It's actually a little more insipid than that. They waved the white flag and he became a resident court historian for Rome, helping Rome understand the Jewish people and all that was going on in this problem province called Palestine. Actually, one of the stories is that there was a a place called Masada, and it's it's a mountaintop fortress. And at Masada, there was this group of Jews that were holding out in that resistance right around 66 to 70 A.D. that led to the destruction of the temple. Remember our two key dates, 587 B.C., 70 A.D.? It's both times Jerusalem got destroyed, Babylon and Rome. Well, it was part of a greater war. And there's this group of Jewish freedom fighters held up at Masada and the siege is going on and they know they're dead. And Josephus is one of two commanders. And as one of the stories goes, they collectively agree it is better to die than to fall into the hands of the Romans. And that may actually be true. I mean, the Romans loved crucifixion. So the officers go through and in kind of like a mass suicide, they go through and they start slaughtering each other. The, the officers are, are given permission to kill the people or convince them that this is better. They, they start killing each other. And then the two officers are left, and they decide it's not a good idea anymore. <laughs> right? And Josephus is one of them. And he ends up becoming this court historian and becomes one of the greatest records there are, one of the greatest secular records or non-biblical records to the events transpiring during the lifetime of Jesus and beyond. Anyway, I bring it up because he writes about the earthquake 760 years later. Quote, word for word, a great earthquake shook the ground and a rent was made in the temple, meaning, you know, and the bright rays of the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face, insomuch that the leprosy seized upon him immediately, and before the city at a place called Eroji, half the mountain broke off from the rest on the west." So he's got a strange kind of cadence, especially in translation, but if you're not following it, the earthquake was so big that it actually did structural damage, to the temple to such a degree that places that you shouldn't be able to see in, like the Holy of Holies, suddenly now have light shining through it. So it's like, where did that wall go? You know, stuff is busted apart. It's almost very reminiscent of the earth shaking and the temple being uh, broken, so to speak, in in, in ways when Jesus was crucified. But it's that last line about like, yeah, like I keep hitting this thing. Half that mountain broke off. That's a big earthquake, when a mountain breaks off. It's like there once was a mountain there. He's writing two years before the earthquake. Here's something significant about it. Have you ever noticed how natural calamity and disaster has a way of sobering people up? You take a lot for granted, you take your prosperity, you take your security for granted, until something happens. Um, 9-11 is a great example to me. One of the things... I, I was early on in my ministry, um, it may be just because I'm a paranoid individual by nature, but one of the things that surprised me was all the people on 9-11 going, how could this happen? What do you mean, how could this happen? We're... We've gone on so many planes with a fake ID in the 90s. How could this not happen? I, I, I mean... How is this surprising? But, but we just get lulled because life is good, and then something comes along, you know, like COVID recently, like a pandemic, all going, oh, wow, things like this can happen. A major earthquake, a major event. They're two years before being sobered up, okay? And we'll get into that a little bit more as well. So when? We've dated through the earthquake, but it's the time of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, who is king of Israel. It's worth reading this stuff. It's worth just situating it, and I actually want to flip there now. You can follow along, but I'll do the reading on this one, and help let it help paint a picture of the political situation, if you will, at the time. 2 Kings chapter 14. Verse 23, Kings jumps back and forth chronologically between the reign of a king in Israel and the reign of a king in Judah. Chronicles is just Judah, all right? But Israel kind of does this ping-pong, and it's confusing if you don't know there's a split kingdom because you're like, what's going on? So let's get into the ping-pong match. Verse 23, it says Jeroboam II, king of Israel, in the 15th year of Amaziah, right? Um, his dad. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Jehoash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in its capital, Samaria. And he reigned, you tell me, stable reign or unstable reign? Well, yeah, you'd just be led to believe. I mean, if you're on the throne for 41 years, you have pretty much secured your dynasty. Things are kind of going well. And even if people hate you, you're still ruling with an iron fist and keeping a certain level of control, which does have, it might be a sadistic stability, but it still is a stability, right? 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Now let's read about some of his exploits. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the sea of the Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, another one of these prophets, Jonah, the son of Amittai, we'll get to him later, the prophet from Gath, Hepher The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of this king who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did, his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Yaudi, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Are they not? Of course they are. Yeah, thank you. Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the king of Israel, and Zechariah his son succeeded him as king. 41 years, and while you might not know the place names, just go with the essence of what it's saying. What did Jeroboam the deuce fundamentally do? He expanded the borders, which means, is he in the position of power or a position of weakness? position of prosperity or a position of want and need, right? You have the troops, you have the supply line, you have the military prowess, you have the strength. This is a strong, wave-the-banner kind of reign, and the earthquake hasn't happened yet. And so it leads you to this arguable conclusion that Israel is enjoying a time of prosperity, a time of feeling somewhat untouchable, a time of feeling the winner, not the loser, a time of watching the borders expand, therefore maybe interpreting God must surely be with us because God would only bring blessing if we were in his favor. And you can start going down all these kinds of rabbit holes with it. Are you kind of with me on that? This is the context that a blue-collar worker From the enemy or at least adverse kingdom comes and speaks into. I don't know what the equivalent today might be, but trying to keep a north south divide, imagine that a Mexican migrant worker comes over the border and comes to DC to speak the words of the Lord of prophecy to the administration of the United States. Take it seriously? Some would, most wouldn't, right? Kind of understand who this guy is and what's going on. So let's jump in and start sampling some of his prophecies and see what Amos does in this book. And I'm going to put several passages up here. Seven, to be specific, which is a, this, this is not my arbitrary division here. This actually is layered in the book. There are seven oracles that he jumps out with seven is a very biblical number it's kind of an intentionally used type of thing but I want you guys to read it and I'm going to save my voice so someone take number one Amos 1 3 to 5 someone take it you're reading out loud thank you Brianna I appreciate it is this big enough to read or do I still need to go bigger on font size back well I know you go to the front (laughs) back row yeah we're good at them all right good deal Amos 1, 6 to 8. We're talking three verse chunks. Okay, I'm going to give that one to you, Kyle. And then, uh, Mike, why don't you come around on 1, 9 to 10. All right? Um, Amos 1, 11 to 12. I'll take it. it. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. Amos 1, 13 to 25. Now you're going to have to do some overtime there, Amy. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Amos 2, verse 1 to 3. Yeah, you want to take it, Bob? Appreciate it. And someone in the back, I kind of saw 2, 4 to 5. Adam, appreciate it. Stand up when you read it, actually say it loud, be be proclamatory, pretend that you are a prophet and that you are speaking this prophecy to the group, not so much because, um, well, because I do want to be weird about it, but so people can hear and whatever, it'll be fun. So who's one, three to five? Brianna, the prophet Brianna, the the shepherdess from Bensonville, or, you're not, are you still working in Bensonville? Yeah, great, the shepherdess from Bensonville, let's have it. Now, did you just have your worst nightmare come true when you got five words in it and went, there are biblical names here? A little bit, bit, but, you know, way to go on it. You rock those names. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, you can follow along right in Amos, and it might even be helpful, but let's start situating it. Really quick, for three sins, even four, right? God is declaring his judgment and wrath against who? Because this stuff's important. We always, no one cares about this, right? But, but against Damascus, and Damascus is located in the region or country typically called Aram, and that is where we get the word Aramaic from, which is one of the biblical languages. And I am just going to put this on a map for you. Here is Jerusalem. Here is Tekoa, where Amos is from. Here is Samaria. Here is Damascus, up here, Syria. Aram. For three sins even four, we have an oracle against Syria. And in like one sentence, what's the basic issue here? What what, what are these people doing wrong? What what what's messed up? She threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Okay, Gilead is another city, and I'm not going to get into it, it's not on the map, but uh, Gilead is an area of Israel, so to speak, and she was threshed with a sledge having iron teeth. Do you know what threshing is? Have you been out like in the fields around here watching the threshers out, so to speak? Okay, would you ever want to be threshed? Would you want to be run over with a machine like that? And if you were, wouldn't you prefer that it had pillow soft teeth? <laughs> no, you see the image, threshed with iron teeth. What did Damascus do? They basically rolled over Gilead. They just plowed into the people of Gilead, tearing them apart, but they probably weren't driving threshers, so unpack the metaphor. What are they basically doing? They're just going in. Yeah, it's a massacre, slaughter them all. You got swords they're iron teeth, and you're just cutting for political advantage, for economic gain, for um, preemptive strike. I mean, call it whatever you want. They're threshing Gilead. That's the issue here. For three sins, even four. Boom. Syria. Damascus. I'm calling you to the mat. Make sense? And the rest just plays out the names of the kings and some of their areas and things like that. But a technique that I find helpful when you're reading this stuff in the prophets and it starts getting into all these confusing, like who and where and what are these places, just find the key issue. Just find the key issue, the key line. What's the main issue here? And then spend about 10 seconds or 30 seconds going, how do I unpack the imagery of what he's saying, and if you can get that, suddenly everything starts to make sense and you can see how they work metaphorically. Follow, so to speak? Who is next? Who's number two? Thank you, Kyle. One who holds the scepter in national act i will turn my head against echereth till the last of the philistines are dead saith the sovereign lord so we see a pattern for three sins even four right for three sins of gaza even four i will not turn back my wrath so where's gaza you see it right down here so we've jumped from north east to southwest. And Gaza and all these cities are the classic Philistine cities. Remember the Philistines, like David and Goliath, and all that kind of stuff? That's this classic region. And what, in a nutshell, did Gaza or the Philistines do that are meriting God's wrath? Yes, yeah, she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. So, in their power politics, so to speak. They are attacking local towns and areas, capturing whole communities, selling the people as slaves to this other neighbor over here. All right? For three sins of Gaza, even four, I will not hold back my wrath. Let's keep going for time's sake. Let's expedite this. Who's next? Mike. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyrant, Doing the same thing, right? And yet, look how far away they are from Edom compared to Gaza. Because Tyre and Sidon are known for their great like shipping and commerce in the time, and so they're, you know, part of the slave trade here as well. Yeah, yeah, for, uh, so because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, uh, basically when David and Solomon were building the temple, they got into to a very warm relationship with Tyre because they needed materials shipped down, and it actually seemed to be what they would consider a, hey, we're in this together, we're we're participating together, and even though you're not part of the kingdom of Israel, you recognize Yahweh and you're, you're cordial to what God is doing here and want to be participatory in it, and now it's just like... Eh, times have changed. Who cares about that old treaty? You got it. You got it. Who's next? Yes, 11 yeah. yeah, 11 and 12. Okay. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon Teman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. We've gone from Damascus to Gaza to Tyre, and both Tyre and Gaza were in collaboration with Edom, and now we have the same pattern. For three sins, even four, I will not turn back my wrath from Edom, Right? because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, going in with rage. We're seeing this kind of, this this theme of, shall we say, violence and brutality, if you will, against others developing here. Yeah, Mike. NIV says, not just the stifling compassion, but they translated it as slaughter the women of the land. So they're, they're not even going after combatants. They're it's civilians, it's the women of the land. Yeah, it's just, it's top to bottom, right. You got it. You got it. Who was five? Amy. Okay, who's next was Moab. So a couple of different ways we can arguably go with Moab here. One can be they're coming in and they're just desecrating the graves even and they're rolling over of the areas, and that's what it means here. Or it can be a way of referring to the extent of violence that they're coming in and as they capture the king and they capture the people and they go to warfare, they're just burning them, burn everything to the ground. kill. So we're seeing this, again, theme of Violence, exploitation, brutality, right? And, and, and in some of the, the harshest imagery. And it's also interesting that even though Edom is getting God's wrath for three sins, even four, that doesn't let Moab off the hook for what they did to Edom, right? Right? There's this strange idea that sometimes creeps in with people that if the person is bad, it doesn't matter what I do. It matters to God. You know, I will judge. It is mine to repay. And even though Edom is guilty, are you the judge to mete out death and execution? Does that give you free reign? No, you'll be held accountable for even what you have done to those who have done evil. That opens up whole new discussions, but I just don't want you to miss that as he's framing it around. Now we're racing the clock on this, but I'm going to give it. to uh, I'm going to finish these seven. Who's next? It's verse four. Two verse four. Oh, got it, Adam. Thanks. Okay, thank you. So now we have circled all of the nations around Israel, right? Do you see that? We have touched on every culture or people group that borders Israel. And now we're even getting close to home. Now we're going into kind of like our brothers here in Judah, which, believe me, Israel's happy to hear about judgment coming on Judah because these these are brothers at war, so to speak. There is separation here. For three sins of Judah, even for I will not hold back my wrath. And this is the first time it changes. None of the other nations are judged for not holding to God's word. Or how does it put it exactly? Because they have rejected the law or the Torah of the Lord and have not kept his decrees and have been led astray by false gods. Believe me, none of these people are keeping the Torah of God. None of these people know the Torah of God. And all of these people are led astray by false gods. But God's not holding them accountable for that, because at some level they don't know any better. You know better, and maybe you're not getting the wrath for the same kind of violence and judgment. Though certainly it's in Judah's history. But you've rejected my decrees. You've rejected my laws. You've gone after false gods. It's almost escalated, if it, if you will, even though it doesn't feel like that when we t- we hear about like pregnant women being ripped open and 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 the threshing of iron teeth and all that kind of stuff going on. And so what we've seen is seven prophecies. And if you are immersed in the culture of Israel and the ancient Near East, you have known that we have just hit the number of completion. You know, we talk about a dozen. We talk about Ten. We talk about three. These are kind of our symbolic numbers for the totality of something. No one ever has a four-point sermon. We'd get hives, right? It's three. You have a three-point thing. You learn to write an essay with an intro, three paragraphs, and a conclusion, right? You don't go to the store and buy 11 of something. That's 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 blasphemy. I mean, what kind of freak are you? You buy 11, you buy 10, or you buy 12? Because we operate with a numerology of our own. Are, are you kind of with me in this? That's what seven is for the Old Testament. We're, we're done. We're complete, right? Thank you, Amos, shepherd of Tekoa, for all of this judgment that you are, you're bringing it to him. You're speaking the word, man. You're bringing it to our enemies because everyone says you're speaking the word when you're speaking the harsh stuff to the people you don't like, right? Except for this. We know from 1-1 that he has come to bring his words, right? During the reign of Judah, but also who? Israel. We've seen the seven. We've spoken harshness and judgment to all of them, right? And all of it is a big rhetorical move for what finally hits next. 2 verse 6, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. And to this point, we have been getting three to five verses of words of judgment against one of the nations, right? The rest of the book of is- uh, of Amos Is all words, is is 90% words of judgment against Israel. And the rhetorical effect should be like this. At the end of the day, after you're cheering on the destruction of Moab, after you're cheering on the judgment God is going to bring against Tyre, after you're celebrating that the Ammonites are finally going to get what they deserve. You realize that for the, pink, the finger I'm pointing at you, I've got three pointing right back at me, right? And Israel finds themselves in the center of Amos's prophetic bullseye. You see what he's doing there? With the seven, with the surrounding them on the map, and they find themselves right on the middle, and this is what the prophet Amos is about. He is saying all of this stuff that you are so indignant about, and and maybe even rightfully so, in all these nations that are surrounding you, God's calling you to the mat, and the rest of the prophecy plays it out. So here's what I'm going to do. We're out of time. I'm going to do a week two on this, because I want you to sample a few more things in Amos before we move on. But what I'd like you to do in the meantime is this. Now that you're armed, read Amos. It'll take you 10 minutes. Don't get hung up on biblical names. Don't follow every detail. Just get the feel and the flow. Take 10 or 15 minutes this week. Listen to it or read it, whatever your preferred medium might be, and then we'll pick it up next time. So that's it. God bless. Thanks for coming, guys.